Today is Wednesday, August the 24th. It's all systems go, weather permitting, of course, with Snoopy on board on a mission to the moon and back. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, PRN.Live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on PRN.Live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. The lead-off news item this evening is there is a major breakthrough with fighting auto warranty robocalls. You've been getting unwanted phone calls from an unknown caller with a message almost on a daily basis about your auto warranty. According to state and federal officials, just two men may be responsible for an overwhelming share of the billions of auto warranty spam calls. A new lawsuit in Ohio is trying to cut them off at their source, following a years-long effort across the public and private sectors to turn the tide on the scourge of robocalls once and for all. In a complaint filed last month by Ohio Attorney General David Yost, the ringleaders of the auto warranty robocall scheme are identified as Roy Melvin Cox Jr. and Aaron Michael Jones, two California individuals described as repeat offenders of U.S. telemarketing rules. Using a web of shell companies, aliases, and fly-by-night phone providers allegedly under their control, Cox and Jones have allegedly sent billions of robocalls nationwide since 2018, offering vehicle service contracts misleadingly characterized as car warranties, according to the suit. The scheme that swamped consumers with calls they never consented to has made millions of dollars. Ohio alleges, by acting as a middleman between call victims and salespeople for shoddy service contracts, it is the most sophisticated illegal robocall operation that I've ever seen by an order of magnitude, said an enforcement official at the FCC. The Ohio suit seeks millions of dollars in fines for alleged violations of state telemarketing and consumer protection laws, alongside the nation's premier telemarketing law, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. It's the highest profile case in years concerning illegal robocalls. Last year, Americans received an estimated 21 billion scam robocalls, according to Umail, a robocall blocking and analysis company. Consumer advocacy groups say unwanted robocalling costs Americans an estimated $30 billion a year, ranging from money lost directly through fraud to as much as $3 billion a year in lost time and nuances. The Ohio lawsuit is not the first to target Cox and Jones, who have both been sued by the federal government before. The same day Ohio filed its suit, the FCC told telecom providers they could voluntarily stop servicing the operations robocalls and eventually ordered all U.S. providers to block the cause outright. By late July, 
the volume of auto warranty spam calls in the United States has fallen sharply from an estimated 5 million per day in June to 1 million. The numbers do not appear to have recovered since. The warranty calls from Cox and Jones, the ones that the attorney generals and others went after, are down to near zero. U-Mails said there are other warranty calls out there, but they are from others. The data show illegal robocalls do appear to be trending downward over all. The crackdown involves not just litigation of individual robocallers, but also unprecedented pressure on phone providers to stop carrying the bogus calls in the first place. In 2015, a group of U.S. phone providers came up with a way to collaboratively trace illegal robocalls back to their source of origin. That technique, known as an industry-led traceback, has turned painstakingly manual forensic efforts into a more digitized, automated process. Starting with a consumer's own phone provider, such as AT&T or Verizon, every traceback compares a robocall's metadata, including the phone numbers involved, which provider last handled the call, and when, with matching data from the previous upstream provider. That provider then does a similar analysis and so on. The investigation continues back up the call custody chain until it reaches a provider that either doesn't respond to the probe or acknowledges having generated a call from a customer in the first place. Then authorities can investigate both the originating voice provider as well as the robo-calling customer. Over half of all tracebacks result in the, in the originating provider cutting ties with a customer whose robocall triggered the probe. Despite the new technique's rapidly apparent benefits, however, it has taken years for it to become mainstream through legislation. In 2019, tracebacks became a congressionally approved investigative tool in the TRACED Act, that's T-R-A-C-E-D Act, a landmark and anti-robocall bill. All U.S. voice providers must now comply with traceback requests. The industry traceback group now processes hundreds of tracebacks a month, and it's widely credited with saving law enforcement critical time and resources. Before this mechanism, the FCC would do the same thing, but they would have to send a subpoena to each provider along the way. Back then, tracing one call would take the FCC two to three months. Now, to do the same thing, that same data is processed in a day or two. The information generated by tracebacks has identified specific phone providers responsible for dumping huge volumes of robocalls onto the U.S. phone networks. In the Ohio case, the data combined with law enforcement's own investigative tools led authorities to Cox and Jones, according to the complaint, which adds that tracebacks have linked their operations to more than 300 distinct auto warranty solicitation campaigns since 2018. The scope and detail of the alleged scheme were staggering. According to the FCC official, who described an interlocking set of front companies, several of which were based in countries such as Hungary and Panama. The robocallers were also adept at playing hide-and-seek, according to U.S. Telecom. When a traceback would uncover one of the voice providers the group was allegedly using to place its calls, 
the ringleaders simply moved the operation out of a different business to generate the cause instead. The crackdown targeting Cox and Jones is just one of several recent enforcement actions against unwanted robocalling. In 2018, the FCC issued a $120 million fine against Adrian Abramowitz for making nearly 100 million illegal robocalls using manipulated caller ID information. Last year, the FCC announced a $10 million fine against Scott D. Rhodes for allegedly manipulating caller ID information in a series of abusive robocall campaigns. A few months later, the FCC also proposed a $225 million fine, the largest in agency history, to John C. Spiller, who was accused of sending a billion robocalls to consumers and selling short-term health insurance plans. On July the 21st of this year, the FCC publicly named all of the individuals and businesses allegedly part of Cox and Jones Network and ordered U.S. voice providers to stop carrying their traffic. Companies that keep passing on the illegal cause could face consequences themselves, including potentially being forced out of business, the agency warned. While the spammers may simply create a new shell companies in response, providers now know that if a business customer shows any ties to Cox and Jones, it'll be the provider's responsibility to act. The Traced Act required the FCC to set up a database to track what providers are doing to curb illegal robocalls. Every voice provider in the country must file paperwork on their robocall efforts and be listed in the database to be allowed to receive traffic from other providers. Being delisted means other providers cannot connect to the blacklisted provider. In its July 21st order, the FCC warned that the threat doesn't just apply to Cox and Jones companies. Voice providers that don't take steps to block the operations cause could find themselves under investigation and potentially cut off from the rest of the U.S. telephone network, too. Removing a provider from the database is not a minor setback. It's a potential death sentence, according to the FCC official, because a provider that can't send or accept traffic from others won't be able to stay in business. The FCC said it was looking at ways to expand its approach, including potentially the automatic delisting of providers tied to illegal robocall activity. The agency also proposed expanding the use of core authentication technologies that can help verify that a caller ID is accurate. All of these developments are largely aimed at what happens after a robocall makes it onto the U.S. phone network. But half of more illegal robocall traffic originates from outside the United States. To go after the individual robocallers overseas, U.S. officials must depend on the cooperation of international counterparts, which doesn't always work out. The crackdown on robocalls domestically reflects an effort to control what U.S. officials can control. One of the most effective changes would be for the FCC to create a bonding and licensing system for voice providers, then seize their bond or revoke their license if they repeatedly break telemarketing rules. The FCC acknowledged that this would likely require significant new regulations.
It's all systems go. Artemis one to lift off with Snoopy. All eyes will be on the historic launch Complex 39B when the Orion spacecraft and the Space Launch System rocket lift off for the first time from NASA's modernized Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Artemis One will be the first in a series of increasingly complex missions to build a long-term human presence at the moon for decades to come. The primary goals for Artemis One are to demonstrate Orion's system in a spaceflight environment and ensure a safe re-entry, descent, splashdown, and recovery prior to the first flight with crew on Artemis II. Artemis I will be the first integrated test of NASA's deep space exploration systems. The Orion spacecraft, space launch system, rocket, and the ground systems at Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida. The first in a series of increasingly complex missions. Artemis I will be an uncrew flight test that will provide a foundation for human deep space exploration and demonstrate our commitment and capability to extend human existence to the moon and beyond. During this flight, the spacecraft will launch on the most powerful rocket in the world and fly further than any spacecraft built for humans has ever flown. It will travel 280,000 miles from Earth, thousands of miles beyond the moon, over the course of about four to six week mission. Orion will stay in space longer than any ship for astronauts had done without docking to a space station and return home faster and hotter than ever before. The Artemis team is targeting its first two-hour launch window from 8.33 a.m. Eastern Time to 10.33 a.m. Eastern Time on Monday, August the 29th, and there are backup launch windows on September 2nd and September 5th. The goal following the flight readiness review is a positive sign that things are on track for the mission. But there are still factors over the next week that could impact when it lifts off the pad, including bad weather. Very little remains on the task list after previous testing rounds of the rocket on the launch pad during wet dress rehearsal, which simulated every step of launch without lifting off. There remains an open item the team will test on launch day. The hydrogen kickstart used to thermally condition the engines did not occur during the final wet dress rehearsal, so this process is now a component of the launch countdown. This test will occur during a point ahead of the final countdown. The rocket stack arrived at the launch pad on August 17th after a four-mile ride aboard one of Apollo-era giant NASA crawler from the Vehicle Assembly Building just like the shuttle missions and Apollo Saturn V rockets once did. The uncrewed Artemis I will launch on a mission that goes beyond the moon and returns to Earth. Once it launches, the spacecraft will reach a distant retrograde orbit around the moon, traveling 1.3 million miles over the course of 42 days. Artemis I will splash down in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of San Diego on October the 10th. Orion's return will be faster and hotter than any spacecraft has ever experienced on its way back to Earth. The Orion spacecraft will travel further than any spacecraft built for humans has ever flown, reaching 40,000 miles beyond 
the far side of the moon, according to NASA. There are no humans on board, but Orion will carry 120 pounds of mementos, including toys, Apollo 11 alitems, and three mannequins. Sitting in the commander seat of Orion will be Commander Munikin Campos, a suited mannequin that can collect data on what future human crews might experience on a lunar trip. The mannequin will wear the new Orion Crew survival system suit designed for astronauts to wear during launch and re-entry. The suit has two radiation sensors. This mission will kick off NASA's Artemis program, which aims to return humans to the moon and land the first women and first person of color on the lunar surface by 2025 and eventually make way for human exploration of Mars. Artemis 1 will also carry a number of science experiments, some of which were installed once the rocket and spacecraft arrived at the launch pad. This week, the Artemis team will open the hatch to Orion one more time to install a plush Snoopy toy who will serve as a mission zero gravity indicator. Once the spacecraft reaches the microgravity environment of space, Snoopy will float through the crew capsule. Streaming viewership surpasses cable TV for the first time in the United States. Nielsen's data marks a milestone for online video. It was just a matter of time before streaming overtook at least one form of conventional TV. Nielsen data indicates that streaming TV viewership in the United States surpassed cable for the first time this July. About 34.8% of viewing time went to shows on internet services, or slightly more than the 34.4% for cable subscription. Traditional TV represented 21.6%. Netflix had the largest slice of streaming time, 8%, thanks largely to demand for Stranger Things 4. However, Hulu also claimed a record 3.6% thanks to only murders in the building and the beer. Amazon Prime Video, meanwhile, thrive at 3% with help from The Boys' third season and The Terminal List. YouTube and YouTube TV earned a combined 7.3%. Cable dependence on sports also played a role. While the medium's overall viewership dropped 8.9% year-over-year, sports viewing plunged 34% without the help of the Summer Olympics and late-running playoffs of the NBA and NHL. Broadcast TV fared even worse, with a 9.8% overall drop and 41% for sports. This represents a significant milestone that could affect the content you see. Creators and TV providers now know that you're more likely to stream than browse cable channels. Don't be surprised if more money goes towards shows that are primarily or exclusively on the internet. Visible, the Verizon-owned all-digital wireless carrier, announced the launch of its two new unlimited plans, Visible and Visible Plus. These plans continue Visible's mission to disrupt the industry through its radically simple offerings and operating model, with a focus on making wireless accessible, easy, and inclusive. Visible and Visible Plus 
are available to new and existing members. The new Visible plan with unlimited data, talk, text, and hotspot is $30 a month for a single line, taxes and fees included, a reduction from the prior standard base rate of $40 a month. The new Visible Plus plan is just $45 a month, all in and includes 5G ultra-wideband access, 50 gigabytes of premium network, roaming coverage in Canada and Mexico, and global calling to over 30 countries from the United States. Visible Plus gives that premium experience on Verizon's network at some of the lowest rates available in the industry for unlimited data. Visible is unique in the industry in not requiring a family plan with multiple lines to get the best rate. The new plans continue to reflect the benefit of the low-cost model of no stores or core centers, simple offers, and allowing customers to purchase the device they want or bring their own. Existing members can move to these new plans at any time through their Visible account. A new SIM will be required, though, and Visible is also expanding coverage and upgrading the core network routing experience in conjunction with these plans, which should provide customers with improved speeds and latency. Additionally, Visible members may refer to new customers and receive $20 off for the next month of service, banking up to 12 months at a time, as a continuation of the referral program. Existing Visible members have the option to maintain their party pay discount while on their current plan and will have their party pay rates locked in based on their party status as of October the 18th, 2022. According to the Wall Street Journal, many workers say that forging office friendships has become harder and less of a priority over the past two years, during which millions of workers have switched jobs or gone remote. A big reason many employees say work friendships are harder to forge and less of a priority. Many workers say that forging office friendships has become harder and less of a priority over the past two years during which millions of working Americans change jobs or work from home. After more than two pandemic years, some professionals are also quiet quitting and making other moves to carve out more work-life balance. That includes cutting back on workplace socializing and bonding. The role of workplace friendships is now getting a big test as companies seek to rebuild office culture and many of their employees still remote part of the time. Among nearly 4,000 hybrid workers surveyed by Gallup in June, 17% said that they had a best friend at work, down from 22% who said they did in 2019. For all workers, including those fully remote or on-site, the share who reported a close work friend slipped less than 19% from 20%. Meanwhile, the data suggests the link between having a best work friend and feeling committed to a job has grown stronger over the past three years, meaning workers who don't have one are more likely to want to leave of about 15% of people without a best friend at work reported being extremely satisfied at work this year, fewer than 23% who said the same in 2019, according to Gallup, which has been surveying employees on their work friendships for more than two decades. 
In a recent survey of nearly 1,000 U.S. employees, relationships with co-workers tied with recognition as the least important factors in job satisfaction. Compensation and work-life balance ranked as the most important of the 14 choices according to online software marketplace Captura, which conducted the survey. Nearly two-thirds of those who had experienced high turnover at their companies said it had become less worthwhile for them to socialize and get to know colleagues. The youngest professionals entered the workplace just as the pandemic arrived and remote work took off, keeping co-workers physically distant from one another. Many 20-plus say they are now not itching to make a change. Half of workers between the ages of 18 and 25 said workplace friendships were not at all important or minimally important, according to the survey by Captura, which is owned by Gartner Digital Markets. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. Concerns when you are a consultant. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, technology, and yes, the impact in our in our world. And one of the interesting things that uh, I had someone contact me, Pierce reached out to me, and Pierce's question in regards to in regards to this, and I put it, I wanted to talk about this here because it's. It's kind of from the consultancy standpoint. It's it's also dealing with consultants, and there were some. Uh, the question was, uh, basically, what do you do about a project? What do you do about uh, what are the key things, the key factors that you look for whenever you're dealing with a project for a client? One of the past problems I had. I I, I had a, a gig that I, uh, I wound up with. It was a very nice, lucrative gig a number of years ago. And I'm not going to say who it was, but it, but it was recognizable enough. It was with a government agency. Uh, and, and I was supposed to do some web development for them. And that's all fine and dandy. And the problems that I ran into really serve as a good foundation for what I want to talk about for the next few minutes. And I want to talk about this from both sides, both perspectives, as we move forward as a consultant working for anybody. One of the first things that really wound uh, wound up being a problem in all of this was the expectations and the expectations of what could be done, what should be done, what wouldn't be done. And that that falls under scope and scope creep. But scope creep is going to be the second topic I'm going to talk about. I'll talk about that in a moment. The expectations were to develop a website and it was going to do specific things and it was going to rely on a database and I could do all of that and it was wonderful and it was great. However, they they had a certain level of expectations that they that they had included, and I strived to meet those. There are other expectations that they didn't have included, which I also said, you're going to need to do this. You're going to need to do that. No, we don't need to. 
No, no, no. You do need to. It's going to it's it, it has to be in there because it's the law. We have to lock down this database. We have to make sure that when you're entering in information into the database that nobody can access it, especially private information. Uh, and there were a lot of these different things that we had to develop a scope along the way. We had to say this is going to be included in and this is not going to be included in. And we set up this scope. Now, what happens sometimes is that maybe you don't communicate well. In our case, we did have some struggles. I had communicated certain things, and they had communicated certain things, and we had said, okay, this is not in the scope. This isn't in the plan of what we're going to do. Unfortunately, as things evolved, some of the things had to be put in, and some of the things had to be removed out, and that is scope creep. And you need to be very careful about scope creep because scope creep also impacts the delivery time and that was a problem as well if you want this delivered in this amount of time then you're going to need to make sure that we keep it under this many hours this is going to require this many hours this is not going to require this many hours or this is going to require a different set of hours so these are the these are two different separate areas. It's a matter of this is our initial expectations, and then this is how it is slowly evolves into something new, and containing all of those in both sections, those expectations on both sides, and the scope creep, all of the different things as it as the project evolves, managing all of that is a chore in itself. And you have to arrive at agreed-upon points in time. And this particular agency was not fond of the documentation. They said, oh, we just need to get it done. No, that's not how it works. Because I need to protect you. I need to protect me. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, was a, it was a rough experience for both sides. Unfortunately, that also led to another issue. And that was this much up front and this much on delivery. And uh, the X amount of upfront, they kept on saying, well, we'll get it to you. We'll get it to you. We'll get it to you. It was a government agency. What I found out was we'll get it to you within 30 days. Wound up actually, I, I didn't get paid. <laughs> I didn't get paid my deposit until the project was 90% delivered. And uh, that led to some some awkward situations. So that's something that also should be included in any kinds of expectations, any kinds of uh, bargaining and so forth. Everyone needs to be making sure that they set up their expectations. It was something that I learned a lot from that particular that particular experience. And uh, and I know they did, too. But we all need to be working on this in every portion of our lives. Not just if you're a consultant, you need to always be planning ahead and saying to your boss, hey, I can get this for you in three weeks. I can get this for you in a week. And we bargain these things out. What what are you expect? What do you want this to look like? What do you not want this to look like? And yeah, we go from there. Key issue, I guess, would be communication. Ensure that you're communicating well on both sides, both giving communications and receiving them.
This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. TechCrunch is an American online newspaper focusing on high-tech and startup companies. As printed media, what they had done was they launched a spyware lookup tool that allows anyone to check if their Android device was compromised by a fleet of consumer-grade spyware apps, including the Truth Spy. The aim is to help victims check if their device was compromised and reclaim control of their device. It follows month-long investigation by TechCrunch into the fleet of spyware apps that share the same server infrastructure, but also the same security flaw and are all spilling the personal phone data of hundreds of thousands of Android users. These stealthy apps are often surreptitiously installed by someone with physical access to a person's device and are designed to stay hidden from home screens, but allow that person to view the victim's phone data in real time, including their calls, messages, contacts, real-time location data, photos, and much more. Their investigation found that the spyware apps were built and maintained by a Vietnam-based group of developers that went to considerable lengths to hide their involvement in the operation, including using fake names and misappropriated identities. But without a fix, TechCrunch cannot reveal more about the security flaw because of the risk it poses to hundreds of thousands of victims whose phones were unknowingly compromised by the fleet of spyware apps. In June, a source provided TechCrunch with a cache of files dumped from the servers of the Truth Spy internal network. That cache of files included a list of every Android device that was compromised by any of the spyware apps in the Truth Spy's network up to April of this year, which is presumably when the data was dumped. The leaked list does not contain enough information for TechCrunch to identify or notify owners of compromised devices. So TechCrunch built this spyware lookup tool. The tool allows anyone to check for themselves if their Android device was compromised by these apps and how to remove the spyware, if it's safe to do so. The tool works by matching against the leaked list of unique device identifiers like the IMEI numbers and advertising IDs, which are commonly collected by apps on your device and sent back to the developer, and these spyware apps are no different. TechCrunch verified the leaked list by matching known identifiers like IMEIs from burner and virtual devices that they used during the investigation into the spyware network. You can use the tool for free, and you can get more information about it by going to TechCrunch. Apple releases iOS, iPadOS, and macOS security fixes for two zero days under active attack. Apple released surprise software updates for iPhones, iPads, and Macs on Wednesday of last week that fix two security vulnerabilities known by Apple to be actively exploited by attackers. The two vulnerabilities were found in WebKit the browser engine that powers Safari and other apps, and the kernel, essentially the core of the operating system. The two flaws affect both iOS and iPadOS and macOS Monterey. 
Apple said the WebKit bug could be exploited if a vulnerable device accessed or processed maliciously crafted web content that may lead to arbitrary code execution, while the second bug allowed a malicious application to execute arbitrary code with kernel privileges, which means full access to the device. The two flaws are believed to be related. Some successful exploits, such as powerful nation-state spyware, use two or more vulnerabilities in conjunction to break through a device's layer of protections. It's not uncommon for attackers to first attack a vulnerability in the device's browser as a way to break into the wider operating system, granting the attacker wide access to the user's sensitive data. Apple said iPhone 6S models and later, iPad Air 2 and later, iPad 5th generation and later, iPad mini 4 and later, and iPod Touch 7th generation and all iPad Pro models are affected. So if you haven't updated with the latest patches, go get them. If you downloaded Zoom when the pandemic first began and haven't updated the software since, now is the time to do so. There has been a steady stream of security flaws in Zoom reported requiring patching. This is occurring like almost every month or almost every three, four weeks. Update your Zoom software and avoid being attacked over Zoom. Be sure to update any Zoom software on phones, tablets, and computers by visiting the Zoom Download Center. You can also open your current Zoom app, go up to the menu on your computer where it says zoom.us and navigate down and click Check for Updates and then follow the prompts to update the software. Unless you're discussing financial matters or personal health information, Zoom should be fine to use. It's easy to set up, easy to use, and lets up to 100 people join a meeting for free. It works. For school classes, after work get-togethers, or even workplace meetings that stick to routine business, there's not much risk in using Zoom. Kids will probably continue to flock to it, as they can even use Snapchat filters on Zoom. Here's what you can do to make Zoom safer. Set up Zoom's two-factor authentication to protect your account. Join Zoom meetings through your web browser instead of via the Zoom desktop software. The web browser version gets security enhancements faster and sits in a sandbox to limit security problems. When you click a link to join a meeting, your browser will open a new tab and prompt you to use or install the Zoom desktop software. But there's a smaller link to join from your browser. Click that instead. Ask that Zoom meetings participant sign in with a password if you are hosting a meeting. That will make Zoom bombing much less likely. And last year on October the 19th, Zoom requires users to be no more than nine months behind in software updates. Zoom announced that as of November 1st, of last year, customers will be required to update their Zoom software, opens a new tab to ensure it is no more than nine months behind the current version at any given time. If you don't update your software, you won't be able to join Zoom meetings. Anyone running software older than that will be prompted to update their software. This affects all Zoom software running on all supported platforms, except for Zoom Room Controller software, Well, at least for now.
I've been a fan of mesh networks, and I presently have installed a Google mesh network. Now I find that there will be a new Google Nest router with Wi-Fi 6E. New FCC filing reveals details of the previously rumored router update. Google appears poised to launch an updated Nest router equipped with Wi-Fi 6E, Bluetooth Low Energy, and Thread Mesh Networking radios later this year, according to a new FCC filing. It has the model number A4RG67UC, which is similar to the IDs assigned to not only the previous Nest Wi-Fi, but also the Nest Mini, Thermostat, and even the Google Glass. In June of this year, a source confirmed that a new Google Nest router was on its way. The filing's internal and external pictures remain confidential and unlisted, but break down the wireless technology on board as well as an internal proprietary antenna solution consisting of six antennas, two by 2.4 gigahertz slash 5 gigahertz dual-band antennas for Bluetooth thread 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi primary, two 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi diversity, and two 2.4 gigahertz slash 6 gigahertz dual-band antennas for Wi-Fi. Unlike their Wi-Fi 6 predecessors, Wi-Fi 6E routers will have a new 6 gigahertz band in addition to 2.4 gigahertz and 5 gigahertz for compatible devices to connect to, reducing signal interference and providing faster speeds. Even if you don't have many devices that can connect on 6 gigahertz yet, the band can be used to backhaul local devices that can connect on 6 gigahertz yet. The band can be used to backhaul communications between access points, taking some of the noise out of the network that can increase performance for other connected devices. While the 9.6 gigabits per second theoretical top speed is unchanged from Wi-Fi 6, the new spectrum should allow devices to use the maximum allowed channel size and reach higher speeds in real-world situations, perhaps around 1 to 2 gigabits per second than you're used to from a wireless connection. Since the release of the original Nest Wi-Fi, smart home devices like the HomePod Mini Adopted Thread, a part of the smart home interoperability standard Google Adopted known as Matter, Thread can create a dedicated network just for smart home devices, making them more reliable and responsive, no matter the manufacturer. It's possible that the new Wi-Fi 6E Google Nest router will be out by the end of the year. The current Nest Wi-Fi package comes with a router and a single mesh point and sells for $269 regularly, but lower prices are found are available. The TP-Link mesh Wi-Fi 6E option, for instance, comes in a pair as well for about $300, and the Eero Pro 6E from Amazon comes in at about 500 for a pair. But I expect these prices to be a lot lower when it really hits the market in full force. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Barbersaw Razor as example of promoting product. Marty Winston joins me now, and Marty has a lot of experience in uh, in 
providing placement for products. Uh, he's been doing this for he did this for a long time. And, uh, you know, Marty, we were talking about this on a recent weekend. I, I wanted to kind of pick your brain as to how do people get you know product placement? And I want to use something as an idea. Uh, there's a there's. A, OK, I shave my head. You know this of a few people in the audience. If they've listened long enough, they know that I shave my head daily and I use something called the head blade. And it does a great job. It's a marvelous job. But I think they do a horrible job at advertising. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I just don't. How, how does I, I know that this is an in industry which is all locked up. We've got, you know, these big, huge names in the industry. How does one tackle something like that? Uh, it, it, it needs technology. Okay. Because what you need in the market to take one step ahead of everybody else is something that's a little bit better, a little bit different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you bring up uh, <laughs> being shiny bald instead of bristly bald. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And which, and which do you prefer? A shiny bald, definitely. Right. Yeah. And that razor isn't there because it's a razor with blades. It's there because it's sold you shiny bald. Yeah. yeah it's never yeah. the product. It's always the user. Okay. So that's important. Now, let's get down to your beard. Oh, it's getting rough and scruffy. <laughs> yes, I, I, I didn't shave this morning. So. Yeah, neither did I, but I'm farther from a worse camera. So <laughs> <laughs> you people watching us on radio... <laughs> I'm not sure that came through, but it's I'm okay. I'm not sure either. <laughs> Maybe I'll wait till tomorrow and try again. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is it you really want when you shave? Is it a clean shave, a fast shave? For me, one of the priorities has been don't bleed. Don't get cut. When when you have as much surface area as I do, yeah, don't bleed is a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, how many, how many blades does that take? It used to be one, two. How about uh, uh, two sides with one each or two sides with two each or five Maybe in a stack or seven, or, right? Yeah, you know? yeah, okay, yeah. Right? That anytime you've got somebody in as simple a product category as razor blades, mm-hmm. they're going to take a look at what they can do to charge more for that little piece of stropped steel. Yes, and the plastic that comes with it, yeah. Uh, Well, plastic these days, not originally. Originally just went into a handle. The handle was free, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, do you know what we pay for handles? I just just bought a, well, okay, I bought a premium handle for... Between 8 and 15 bucks. I paid... Well, this one's this one's got some weight to it. It's uh, it's a solid one. I paid forty dollars for this. That's it, it's a third party. Coming. Oh no 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 no! <laughs> this is it, it's it, it, this. I could def- right. I, I could I could defend my house with it. <laughs> well, it it it's it's heavy, <laughs> but yeah. Okay, well, defend your house. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it'll be by death way, by a the thousand other end cuts. Can defend but, you too, you know. <laughs> what was that? The other end can defend you, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One step closer and I'll cut through your beard. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, well. Mm. One of the I things- survived. It was a close shave, but I survived. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyways, go on. Let's. <laughs> 
stay well, on track. One of the things that brought this up for me recently, mm-hmm. uh, I prefer, I buy, I've, now I've bought a million different kinds of shave cream, but Barbasol. Mm-hmm. Barbasol's yeah. been around for a long time. They're an Ohio company. I'm in Ohio. Hi, mm-hmm. guys. And, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I finally read the back of the can. And the back of the can was advertising the new Barbasol Ultra 6 Plus Razor. Okay. I, I thought, okay. Oh, I'm intrigued. Yeah. I mean, okay. Gillette made razors and they came out with what edge or rise or one of those one of those is shake and one mm-hmm. of those is gillette yeah. and yeah. yeah and they're okay brands but nobody says go get me a can of rise or the can of edge or a can of foamy that was the gillette mm-hmm. one yeah yeah but you know barbasol having a razor i thought okay they know this is a tough entry mm-hmm. yeah they got to be able to do something that's a little bit different so they've got a six plus one with six blades on the head and one on the trimmer the back which is a standard kind of thing okay. today yeah, right? yeah. And the first time I shaved with it, it got me smooth in the first stroke. Usually nice. I've got to go over things a couple of times. Sure, yeah. Uh, so, okay. They've managed to streamline the process. Mm-hmm. And that is an edge. Uh, I'm looking at... <laughs> oh, an edge. <laughs> so sorry. You didn't even do that intentionally. That's great. No, I did not. It's got a moisture strip on it. It's got some other stuff on it. But overall, you know, Barbasol is uh, from uh, Perio, and Perio is not a huge company. Mm -hmm. You know, they're making this stuff here, and, and, you know, I'm near Cleveland. They're near Columbus, and that's fine. I I talked to the guy who's behind it, Mm -hmm. and... uh, he, he said, so what do you really want out of me? Because he's getting pitched by everybody who wants sponsorships and all that sure, stuff. Sure, sure, yeah. I said, just a razor. Put it in the mail and I'll cover it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, so, you know, so, so you're enjoying it. A couple it. of plates and it, it, it's a little bit different. Is it better? Not quite. Okay. And for right now, the best place to buy it is on Barbasol's own website. Okay. Breaking through to a uh, uh, target with this, not likely to happen, but it's a good razor and they got better stuff coming. So they got better close. stuff coming. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements of computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group will have a presentation, Cyber Securing U.S. Elections, Thursday, August the 25th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m., virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is bcug.com. The Westchester PC Users Group will have a presentation on the James Webb Telescope. Thursday, September the 1st. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has a meeting on Friday, September the 2nd. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club will have a presentation on how to publish a non-fiction book on Amazon. 
Thursday, September the 8th, meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom. The website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group has a meeting on Friday, September the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, September the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And for more information and confirmation, the phone number is 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.